Our text is going to be Psalm 139. I guess you found it by now, yes? Good. This is God's holy word for us today. This is to the choir master. It says it's a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You pray with me? Father, I believe there is good work to do in your word. I pray that we will do that work faithfully. Would you do mighty things? Teach us who you are that we might better desire to love and follow you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. The psalm we just read is often a favorite of at least one person in the room. Would any of y'all claim this is your favorite one? Maybe some. Psalm 139 is what some would say is the theologically richest of the Psalms. It describes some glorious attributes of God. It clearly helps us see where we stand in God's presence. And it clearly, it clearly pierces deeply into our own hearts and challenges us to repent of sin. 
I don't want to give you a lot of opening here. I just want you to be ready for six things that we're going to find in this psalm. And the first four of them, we're going to go with David into some marvelous and inspiring truths about God. And in all the points here, I will call you the first four to have joy because there's comfort and there's security to be found in God and God's attributes. But the last two points are a little more challenging. David, that David, takes us down a difficult road. But he will help us if we follow along to find a passion for God's glory. In fact, if you want a sermon title, I'm not much into sermon titles, but this would be developing a passion for God's glory. Come with me. Let's get to work and celebrate with David the glories of God. Point number one, verses one through four, rejoice in God's complete knowledge. Rejoice in God's complete knowledge. David begins here by celebrating the knowledge of God and what David writes about himself, you and I have to see is true for us as well. Verse one says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. God, friends, has searched us. God has looked through every part of us. There is no corner of our lives left unobserved. God is intimately acquainted with our every way. In one single effortless moment, God knows you and me as fully as we could ever possibly be known. God knows you and me better, significantly better, infinitely better than you and I even know ourselves. Verses 2 and 3, David says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. This is drawing the knowledge of God out to the extreme, wouldn't you say? God knows my path. He knows where I go, whether I'm sitting down, whether I'm rising up, whether I'm inside, whether I'm outside, whether I'm walking around, whether I'm laying down to take a nap. God knows it all. Whether I'm in the room or whether I'm watching on Facebook, God knows me completely. All those opposites, the inside, outside, up, down, those all are there to show us the completeness of the knowledge of God. God knows our ways. God knows our thoughts. God knows our imaginings. God knows our motivation. What incredible insight God has. Y'all get it? There is no hiding from God. You cannot hide where you go from him. You cannot hide what you do from him. You cannot hide your thoughts from him. And in verse 4, it goes even deeper. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You cannot even hide your future words from God. God knows what you're going to say before you do. What incredible thoughts. 
He knows us completely. He knows us inside. He knows us out. He knows where we go, what we do. He knows what we think and why we do the things we do. He even knows our future thoughts. He knows our future motivations. And now here comes the big question. This is an important question in any study of the Bible. So what? How, Christian, does this impact your life? Why do you care? Well, here's a thought. If God knows my every thought, my every motive, my every action, I may as well not try to hide a single thing from him. How silly would that be, right? God knows it. I can confess my sin to God immediately and without reservation or hesitation. Another thought is, I also don't have to struggle to explain myself to the Lord. Isn't that good? God knows me intimately. God is not confused by my limited grasp of language or my weak little mind. God is fully aware of all of my reasoning. Have you ever, by the way, found yourself in prayer trying to explain something to God as if you need to make it clear for him? Think that through. This is good news. But it also, it also means I can't fool God with a clever argument. Well, God, obviously I was doing this and that was good, so that's why you should see, not think I was bad for going against your word. No. God is not going to be swayed by any justification I make for my sin. He's not going to be impressed with any excuse or argument I can make. He knows what I've done. He knows why I did it. He knows why I did it better than I know why I did it. So I can be honest with God, but I cannot hide from God. So this either makes you very nervous. If you're living in sin, this is not super comforting. If you're making excuses for being selfish or godless in your behavior, there's no comfort in these verses. But if you're seeking the Lord and if you're seeking his glory, there is great joy in these thoughts because God knows you fully. But he still wants a relationship with you. He knows even your future decisions, yet he still calls you to be his child. He knows your potential completely. He knows your abilities. He knows your weaknesses. He can and will steer the course of your life. You can be totally honest with God because he fully understands you. And so you can rejoice and you should rejoice in God's complete knowledge. But knowledge is not all that's here. Point number two, five to ten Five through ten, re rejoice in God's universal presence. Rejoice in God's universal presence. God is not only all-knowing, God is also ever-present. Verses five and six, David says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Look at the presence of God right here. He hems me in. God encloses me on all sides. That's an illustration. That's a picture David's using. Consider the hem of a garment. Y'all know what a hem is, you young people? 
when I was little, we used to have to hem, have, like someone would hem our pants for us, right? Because we didn't just buy new things every time we grew an inch or something. But it's that cuff on your sleeve or on your pant leg where the fabric has been folded over and sewn together. You know what I'm talking about? And if something was inside the hem, then it is totally wrapped up and enclosed in the garment, right? That is how God surrounds us. If you dive into the sea, God surrounds you more closely than does the water. He's right there with you. He touches you, not physically, but really. His hand is on you. What's David's reaction to that? It's not claustrophobia. It leads David to exclaim that this knowledge is too much for him. His mind cannot grasp how incredible it is that God would be so near. The all-knowing, perfectly holy God who created the universe is right here with me. And David is amazed. That's the whole point here. But God's not just right here. Verses 7 through 10, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So where is God? Or where could I go to get away from the presence of God? Leaving God's presence is an impossibility. You wouldn't run to heaven to get away from God, now would you? He's there. But if you descend to hell, if you descend to the place of the dead, he's there. If I fly with the dawn, if I move at the speed of light from east to west, if I hid myself in the deepest part of the ocean, if I travel to a foreign land, God is still right there. His hand is still there to guide me. He is fully able to hold me. He is totally able to protect me. And what David's right, what David wrote here, you've got to understand, guys, this is a foreign concept to most people who lived a thousand BC when David was alive. Because you see, many people who lived in, the, in those days believed that gods were not always present. They believed instead that the gods of a nation would be bound by certain types of borders. Think about Jonah for a moment. Do you remember when Jonah heard from God to go to Tarshish? What did Jonah try to do? He tried to run the other way as if God might not reach him. Jonah was thinking like a pagan. God can't reach me over here. In 1 Kings 20, verse 23, the Syrian army was going to attack Israel, and they thought, well, we can win if we get Israel down on the plains because the Israelites serve gods that are bound up in the hills. They thought, man, if we can get them off those hills, their God cannot support them. Guess what? The Syrians were wrong. God is not bound by hills or by plain or by sea or by sky or by earth. David knew differently. God is not bound by land, by sea, by height, by depth, by mountain, by valley, or any national border. God is always present and always able, always able 
to lead, to help, to protect. So like the first point, this can be comforting to some and disturbing to other people, right? If you are living an ungodly life, don't think that you can escape the presence of God. There's no place you can run from God. There's nowhere that God can't reach you. But for the follower of God, what comfort is found here? God is right here with you, no matter where you are. Even if you're listening, even if you're listening to us on the internet, maybe you're in some other country, or maybe you're just scattered across the country. Maybe you're a family that you're way up in the Northwest and you've just dropped off a kid in college in the Southeast. You know what? God is as much where you are and where they are as, as, as can be. God is present. He hasn't left you. You are not abandoned. You're completely surrounded by the presence of God. That should refresh your spirit and give you comfort, and it should make you rejoice in God's universal presence. Now, David's next thought of God's glory is point number three, verses 11 to 16. Rejoice in God's total vision. Total vision. We're going to combine in this thought the knowledge of God and the presence of God into one thing. Look at 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Darkness does not hide us from God. God sees right through it as if it were noonday sun. Now, on one hand, again, this is glorious. God sees you in the dark. You don't need to be afraid that something would hide you from his sight. You need not fear the things that lurk in the shadows. But on the other hand, it can be a little frightening, right? We also may not lurk in the shadows ourselves and be out of the sight of God. You cannot hide sin from God with night. Sadly, we often act like we can hide from God. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a child hiding in the cabinets by poking their head in. You ever seen it? Parents? How many of you have ever seen a kid that says, you can't see me, and there's a head behind the doors, and there's a big old baby bottom sticking right out? You know what I'm talking about? We do that. Sadly, sometimes people act like they could hide from God. You may say you know God sees you, but do you live that truth? Or when you are behind closed doors, do you think you're alone? In the darkness of your rooms, in the darkness of your homes, do you do things you would be ashamed for decent people to see, to know about? The John Calvin's words fit your life, quote, We are ashamed to let men know and witness our delinquencies, but we are as indifferent to what God may think of us as if our sins were covered and veiled from his inspection. Is that you? God sees through the dark, and there's no hiding from God. Let me ask you, does that bring you joy or fear? 
And the answer to that question is fully dependent on your relationship with and walk with the Lord. God's vision extends deeper than basic darkness, by the way. Look at this. Look at God's sight. How do you know God sees everything? Verses 13 to 16 say, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How far, how far does God's vision extend? It extends to your inmost parts. He saw us before our bodies were formed. He reached out and knit us together in our mother's wombs. He designed and crafted and shaped and constructed our bodies. Now, you may not be happy with your physical appearance, but you should still be struck with the incredible glory of the body God has made. You could not design something like this, folks. David says it is fearful and wonderful. And in verse 16, he says that God has already written all of our days in his book. His vision extends to your smallest innermost parts, and his vision extends to your most distant future. That is an incredible God. How many more days are you going to live? I don't know. You don't know. God knows. And you're not changing it. A little quick side point here, just because I want to make a side point. Unborn human children, babies in the womb, have the hand of God upon them. Every little baby boy has God as his fashioner, whether he's been born yet or not. Every little baby girl has God already writing in his book her future days. These children have full humanity. They have full dignity. And this little section of scripture, if nothing else was in there, this little section of scripture would make it plain enough that unborn children are people made in the image of God, and therefore we must protect unborn human children just as we would protect any full-grown adult person. We would say, we could say a lot more on that. We could do sermons on that. We could do speeches on that. We could write books on that. But I just wanted to point out to you here as a side point, it is clear and it's right here. Okay? What's the significance of this whole section? God sees us. He sees us in the dark. He sees us in the womb. He knows us because he made every last part of us. He knows even our future. Christians, be amazed. Rejoice in the God who sees you that fully. Don't you dare think you're hidden from his view, but celebrate that you are always in his sight. One more rejoice point right here. Point number four, rejoice in God's magnificent thoughts. Rejoice in God's magnificent thoughts. 17 to 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. 
So finally here, David celebrates God's thoughts. This is an indication of God's wisdom. God sees everything. He's ever present, and he's totally, totally wise. All the things that God has ever thought are wonderful. You know that's not true of you? Wives, would you say that everything your husband has ever thought is wonderful? I'm not hearing any takers on this. Probably not, right? Every thought the Lord has ever had is wonderful. All of the things that God has ever done are wonderful. His wisdom is totally perfect and trustworthy. His wisdom is incredibly valuable. It is precious to David. It should be precious to you and me. Psalm 119, verse 62, David says, At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Then in verse 72, in the same psalm, he says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And the wisdom of God doesn't go away. Every morning when you wake up, the wisdom of God is right there with you. He's with you. His amazing power, His beautiful wisdom, His precepts are right here for you. And that's the cause for Christians to celebrate because we rejoice in God's magnificent thoughts. We should treasure them. We should read them in His Word. We should meditate on them. We should memorize them. We should let them change our lives. And that demands a love of Scripture that is beyond what many of us would naturally have. God's thoughts are perfect. God's word is soul-changing. Do you love it like you should? Do you study it on your own? Do you make worship attendance, including hearing the expository preaching of the word? Is that a personal priority to you? Have you ever thought about how many people, how many people would say they love the Lord, but will walk away from faithful preaching if any other opportunity opens its door to them? Don't be that. Do you open the Word of God with your friends and with your family members? May we love these glorious, fresh thoughts from the Lord. Let us never neglect time in the Word. And now I want to take a moment to add something here. It's vital to what we're doing in our church right now. This this thought here, tying a couple things together, is why we're in this text today. It's one of the reasons why. God, God has some other sovereign reasons why we're in this text today. But one of the reasons this is the text It's because I want you to get this. God wants you to get this. God knows you better than you know yourself. God is with you everywhere. And he knows everywhere better than you know it. God sees you inside and out. He designed you inside and out. God's thoughts, God's wisdom, God's commands are perfect. We studied that the last couple of weeks, right? God's wisdom, his commands are better than any idea that you or I have ever had. God is good. God's word is good. God's ways are good. 
And even when the commands of God would seem strange to us, even when the commands of God or the ways of God would seem out of touch with the society in which we live, we must trust that the God who knows us and sees us, who knows more and sees more than you or I could ever dream, that God knows what is good for us. And so we must learn to trust him and to rejoice in his glorious truth. You guys see why that's so important? But the psalm doesn't end here. It would be convenient if the psalm ended here. For the pastor, man, this would be the happiest sermon ever to preach, right? This is some good stuff. Amen. Let's all go eat. But if we're going to follow this psalm to its conclusion, the call changes. It moves away from a call to rejoice. Point number five, hate that which opposes the glory of God. Point number five, hate that which opposes the glory of God. 19 and 20 say, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. In case you didn't notice, the tone just changed. Could you feel it? What causes that kind of change? What are we supposed to do with this? Let's examine what David prays, and then we'll see what to do with it. David asks for God to let his judgment fall Judgment on a certain kind of people. He calls them the wicked, men of blood, men who speak maliciously against God, men who take God's name in vain. So what's David mad about? He hates wickedness. He hates men of blood. And that means David wants nothing to do with the violent, with those who kill the weak and the helpless. He calls for God's judgment on those who speak maliciously against him. David will not tolerate those who mock God. He wants God to put a stop to those who talk in such a way as to demean the Lord. David is upset with those who use God's name in vain. He cannot stomach those who pretend to care about God and the things of the Lord, but who really have no interest at all in obeying the Lord. Notice something real quick with me. None of those sins that David says he hates are sins against David personally. These aren't people who have hurt David or robbed David of David's rights. David's not out to protect David's own name, but the name of the God that he's been describing to us for 18 verses. He wants God to wipe out these evil men. And that might seem a little harsh to us. I think it's fair. But let's give David a little slack here, huh? You know, in the old days when people opposed the name of God, they did not work through the court system or even through corrupt governors just to try to apply legal pressure to change the way believers behave. In David's day, if you opposed God, you know what you did? You swept into Israel with swords drawn 
killing Jews and trying to destroy the temple. That's what happened in David's time. David is asking that God would judge people like that and protect God's own name, protect God's own people, protect God's own worship. You know, you might say, well, that's Old Testament. But friends, Christians, we have never been called by God to despise His wrath or to despise His judgment. Romans 12, verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You think Paul's about to say, never avenge yourselves because nothing should ever be avenged. You think that's what he's about to say? He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul closes 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 22 with, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. How's that for a soft ending? I'm not saying that we should become an uncaring or harsh people who delight in seeing people judged. But the fact remains that there are some people who will not repent of sin. There are wicked men. There are murderers and there are rapists and there are muggers and violent criminals out there who are setting themselves up against the kingdom of God. There are governments who torture and kill anybody associated with Christianity. And God knows the future of those men. And if those men are not going to stop their practices, if those men are not going to repent of their wickedness, then the judgment of God is the most merciful thing God could bring. It would be better for God to stop such people now, taking them out of the world by God's mighty power, than for them to be allowed to continue to abuse and hurt Others. It would be a kindness of God to take those who will not repent out of the world before they earn for themselves even greater wrath from God. Now listen, I'm not celebrating the coming of judgment, but I want to stand opposed to anyone who would look at these words in Psalm 139 and argue that David is wrong for saying them or out of touch with the God of the Bible. He is not. You cannot make that point. You can't make it from the Old Testament, and you can't make it from the New Testament. David prays that if people would want to kill the people of God, if they would want to destroy the worship of God, David prays God would stop them, and we should not fault that prayer. It's not selfish. It's not arrogant. It's not offered out of a lazy modern desire for greater comfort or more toys. It is a, it is a God-driven thing, not an ego-driven thing. This is a prayer uttered out of a heart that is zealous for the name and the glory of God and for the protection of the innocent. This is a prayer with which we cannot find fault. But I will say that the next words of David are even more troubling if that one got you. 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That is not your most common Christian t-shirt verse. We know Jesus told us, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So how can David pray or hate these people? Again, I think a key is found in whose enemies they are. 
These are not personal oppressors of David. They are men opposed to God. And this action on their part leads David, yes, to a place of very strong emotion. David will have nothing to do with these men. This does not equate to David intentionally being cruel to somebody. David's not saying, I'm going to be nasty to them. I'm going to treat them unfairly. I'm going to go out and abuse them back. David is not trying to hurt them back for what they've done. But they're surely not David's friends. He has turned from them. They are his enemies. And we could go on and on trying to understand David's words here and the ethics here, but the question is still present. But it's the same so what as was before. What do you learn from this? What do I learn from this? What do we, if we're writing our here journals, we can highlight this verse, we can explain this verse. How do we apply this verse? What can we do to respond to this after we read it? David has a passion for the glory of the name of God. David is strongly opposed to those who would oppose the glory of God. Why can we not have that kind of passion, Christians? Why can we not hate the things opposed to the glory of God? Because we should. But here's what I would suggest in order to keep it from the ungodly hatred of enemies that Jesus forbids. You need to make certain, certain that your desire for justice or your anger against somebody's actions is not based on your own personal discomfort. You see, righteous indignation comes when the one insulted is God, or when the target is the weak or the helpless who need protection. Righteous indignation does not come out of a person who is selfishly fighting for his own rights or his own comforts. So I would suggest praying that God would resolve an evil and unjust situation by saving souls and changing hearts first. Wouldn't that be a good way to start? God, save those people. Change their mind. Stop them from being able to hurt people. But if that's not God's will in a particular situation, there's nothing wrong with praying that God would let his judgment fall and bring justice in the situation. You don't take matters into your own hands. You don't go out and hurt people because they hurt you. You pray that God change people. You pray that God bring his justice by God's own power. Now let's keep the whole psalm in mind. David exalts God's knowledge, presence, vision, thoughts. He expresses a hatred of the things that oppose the glory of God. And those thoughts all go hand in hand. We rejoice in who God is, and rejoicing in who God is will lead you to hate the things that oppose God. You need to hate the things that oppose God. I'm not telling you to start hating a lot of people, but what I'm telling you to do is you should learn, you should actually pray that God would build in you a genuine hatred for the things that oppose the glory of God. That's the point to take away here. Learn to hate what opposes God's glory. But you can't close the psalm without the final thought, and this final thought really helps us not to go too far with becoming a cranky, mean-spirited, evil hater. Because you know those folks, right? You know the people that have made it their life's mission to expose how messed up things are, even without a solution. Those folks don't help things. Point number six. Begin the search for what opposes God's glory in your own heart. Begin the search for that which opposes God's glory 
in your own heart. 23 and 24, the end of the psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. After David expresses hatred for what dishonors God, he turns inward. The hatred that he had in verses 19 to 22, it's not out of selfishness, it's not out of ego, because look at how he closes. God, search my heart. Show me if there's evil there. Show me if the, the, the lack of respect for your glory that I hate out there is actually in here. Lead me in your ways. I hate the wicked. God, please search me because I've got wickedness. Root it out. Change me because I know I can be given to wickedness just like the things I say I hate. David doesn't want the wicked to attack God. Neither does David want his own heart to do the same thing. David has seen God's glory. He's exalted in God's knowledge, presence, vision, and precepts. He's hated wickedness, and he places the final focus of that hatred squarely where it belongs on the wickedness he finds in his own heart. He wants to glorify the God of infinite knowledge, universal presence, total vision, wondrous thoughts. So remember this part of the psalm and let it lead you to look at your own heart long before you cry out against the hearts of others. And surely don't cry out against the hearts of others without asking God to examine your own heart. So what do we take away from all this? Some of you have walked through this passage with me before. Who knows, the takeaways may be different this time through. God's awesome in every way. We saw that, right? He knows everything, past, present, and future. God is everywhere. God sees all things, even the complete lives of unborn children. God's thoughts are unsearchable. We rejoice in God's glory. We take comfort in God's attributes. Our souls are refreshed as we meditate on who God is. With such a great God, we should hate everything that would speak against God's name and glory. Listen, why should you hate what opposes God? Because what opposes God is never, never, never best. What do you want people to have, best or worst? What do you want people to have, life or death? What do you want people to do, thrive or be swallowed up? You have to hate wickedness because you want joy. And you want others to have joy. And if we're going to be honest, the hatred of things that go against the glory of God has to start with the hatred of the evils in our own hearts, the things that rob us from being what God wants us to be. The God who sees your heart can see where you stand against him and where you stand against his honor. So let's ask God, God, kill that evil within us.
And then let's ask God, bring the knowledge, please, Lord, of your glory and your greatness to all the earth, starting right here in the center of my heart, and work it out through my family, through my community, through the nations. God can do this. God will do this. But there's only one way that it happens. The only way for you to have a heart that's ready to follow God is for you to find life through the life-changing blood of Jesus. If you don't yet know Jesus, I would urge you to surrender to Jesus today. Believe. Plead with God to have mercy on your soul because Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the grave to save your soul. Understand, you can never earn the favor of God by being good, not even by being religious. Realize that Jesus is your only hope, and then entrust your soul to him, and commit your life to him, and turn from sin, and trust in Jesus, and cry out for mercy. And that's the only way that you will praise and glorify and live in the joy of the glorious God who made you. And he knows you. He knows how you work. He knows how to satisfy your soul. He knows you better than you would ever know yourself. Let's pray together, friends. Father, your word is joy-filled and it's challenging and convicting. We would plead with you, Lord, to grant to us the ability to know you and to love you better than we have ever known or loved you before. Help us trust in the fact that you know us inside and out, past, present, and future, here, there, and everywhere so that we might know that every plan you have, every command you've ever given, every standard you've ever developed is better than our ideas. God, have mercy on our souls. God, give us wisdom to follow you. God, do miracles in our hearts. That's our prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.